Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. beautiful on the inside and outside she I grew up listening to her, this one particular song that she sang a soft place to fall my dad was obsessed with it when I was growing up we listened to it probably every day of my childhood once I was old enough to know what music was like my teen years I listened to it all the time so to have her on my podcast was amazing and then to hear her story Oh, man. The song that I was listening to was A Soft Place to Fall, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song. She sang at the Oscars. She later went on to be nominated for a Grammy with her former husband, who she has a 10-year-old son with, John Henry, and we talk about that, who has autism, and she talks about parenting. And sorry, that's my doorbell. <laughs> I would redo this intro, but this is called Get Real. And there you go. That's my doorbell. Um, she talks about parenting and what he has taught her um, as a mother. And then, but we talk a lot about her childhood and what has shaped her into who she is, which was the her upbringing from her parents and then the murder, suicide of her mom and dad, her father had a drinking problem and one night after her mom had left, he killed her, her mom and then killed himself. And we talk about how that has shaped Allison's life and her sister, Shelby Lynn, who is a Grammy winner for her music. They're both so incredibly talented. And I walked away from this interview just feeling so unbelievably inspired by Allison's gift of sharing 
and her ability to rise up because so many of us have struggles that we deal with. There's a variety of levels and of pain that we all go through, but a lot of us don't want to confront our pain and don't want to talk about it and definitely don't just don't want to accept it. And Allison has done all of the above and she is using her pain and her story to make beautiful art and to share with the world to help heal the world. And I think she is one of the most special people I've ever gotten to talk to. And I know that her interview is going to inspire you to no end. And she ended this interview. I always ask everyone to leave your light. And she, I asked her what she wants people to know. And she said that she tried because she's tried her whole life to be such an amazing person to be so good and to do great things because of a variety of reasons. And I just want her to know, and I know that you all will feel this when you hear the, hear this interview. Not only has she tried, but she has succeeded and she has impacted this world in the most amazing way. And I am so blessed to have her on this podcast and I cannot wait for y'all to hear this episode. So here is Allison Moore. I am always excited about my interviews, but I am really excited about this interview with you. You're so sweet. I'm excited too. Allison Moore is in my house, which is also a thrill because I told you this, we met at a dinner party the other day. We have a mutual friend, Alyssa Rosen. Heck, she has a very beautiful long name she's an awesome photographer she does interior photography and she's just an incredible woman who's so light inspired so she had a dinner party for her birthday and I didn't knew I wasn't gonna know really anyone there but I was like Alyssa is one of those people that she's so awesome that when she invites you to a dinner party of women you want to go because you know everyone's gonna be awesome there and it totally was and Allison was there and one of the things that Alyssa did at this dinner party that was so amazing was she made everyone pick out a quote. She had curated this beautiful party. She had all this like this this table of quotes like at each placement, right? Mm-hmm. And you had to walk around. I actually missed that part. It's so, such a great idea. It's such a great tell way me to exactly get to how know that part was. People in a great conversation starter. Well, you know, I knew I wasn't going to know anyone there either. I, well, I suspected I wouldn't, <laughs> um, and I didn't. But, um, you know, she had quotes on cards at every place setting. And so I got there and we had, you know, a drink and we're sort of just talking. And then we went to move over to the to the dining table. And she had a quote on a card at each place setting and asked us to go around and look for which one resonated the most with us and sit at that place. So, um I thought that was a really good idea and Which a really quote, good. Do you remember your quote? Um, if you notice an absence of, this is not it uh, verbatim. I can't remember it exactly, but I did save the card and I stuck it inside a book. Um, if you, something like if you notice an absence of fire in the world, make it your business to go about setting them. Wow. Yeah. Tell me why you picked that quote. I picked that because um, I feel like I have always had that intention when it comes to making art and the conversations that I want to start and have around the art I make. 
Um, I don't. It kind of reminds me of that quote. Don't do what you think you need to do. Do in life what sets you on fire, because that's what the world needs. Basically, whatever it is you're passionate about. Um, I released a book in October, which 2019. Amazing. With an album to go with it. Yeah, yes. So the book is a memoir of my childhood, and which was difficult. And it, you know, it's set in three parts. Parts one and two are about my childhood, and part three is present day, which is sort of me reflecting on all of part one and two and figuring out what that all means. Um, so I didn't know... I knew that I was putting myself and my family's story out in the world in a way that I had not previously done. But what I was not prepared for, what I didn't think about, was that when I did that, people would actually read it, and then they would want to respond to me in some way. They um, would want to tell me their stories, or they would be inspired to tell their own stories, because at the end of the day, no one has a perfect childhood, no one has a perfect family. It's all kind of a mess when it gets right down to it. And it's a wonder any of us live through it. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of cases, um, people are harboring trauma and difficulty and holding things in that they feel like they cannot say. Uh-huh. Why do you think that is? I think because family issues bring a lot of shame to us. Yeah. Dysfunction brings a lot of shame to us and shame itself is a is a major dysfunction and something that keeps us from living fully you said something i I had to write down quotes because um, (laughs) you said um what was it it's hard to feel like there's a your story we're gonna have to talk about blood and what inspired prompted you to start writing it because i know it was a long time in the making for Mm -hmm. you but you said it's hard to feel worth when you when you don't feel that from your parents or so, uh, on mm-hmm. some level. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it's like this. Evolutionarily speaking, uh, did I just make up a word? Evolutionarily? I, I, it should be one if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we are programmed to please and trust our parents, mainly trust our parents. We have to when we're babies. You got no choice. You, Yeah, you have no choice but to trust the people who bring you into the world. When that trust is broken or breached in whatever way, I feel like it sets our axis at a tilt. Was your trust broken from the beginning? Absolutely. When And this is the rub. Your parents are human beings. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's going to be damage in that area no one has ever parented perfectly and no one's ever going to so this is um a push and a pull and a dance that we have to dance with each other and we have to through grace and forgiveness figure out how to function as human beings despite how difficult it is to have an actual healthy relationship between any two people. Mm -hmm. And when they're, you know, you're bringing a lot of family baggage from one side or the other into a situation. My point is putting your stuff off on your child Mm -hmm. is going to happen. Right. But having the maximum self-awareness about that, I think should go hand in hand. 
Which is very hard. With the knowledge that, okay, I know I'm going to screw my child up right. in my very own special way. <laughs> um, let me make sure that I'm not dragging generations of other baggage into this. But most that, people don't have any kind of self-awareness about that. Right. And I think that that's the overarching message that I wanted to get to. And not in a preachy way at all, but just, you know, I, I'm a big believer in show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. So through my own examination of my own childhood and my own life and my own parenting, you know, first of all, I never would have written this book had I not become a parent. I would have had no reason to. And one of the things you said was you were able to forgive your dad and have love for your dad because you have a son mm -hmm. and you know that your dad was once a son and a child. I think we would be much better off as people if we were able to see each other that way. Like he was once a clean slate and innocent. Absolutely. And something happened to him. Something happened to him that caused him to go off the rails. So just as I want to have compassion. It's amazing you've got to, gotten to forgiveness. Well, I want to have compassion for myself. And I can't have that unless I have it for other people. And I can't have it for other people unless I have it for myself. So that's a circle and something that we always have to be working on. Mm -hmm. How do we do that when we're trying to pay the mortgage and take care of our children and keep all the balls in the air and the plates spinning and all the things we do? And deal with trauma that's just lingering in the background. We have to somehow make room for that in our lives so that we can have the awareness so we're not constantly screwing up. At least that's how I feel. I have to make some room in my own life for my own self to have a minute, just a minute, where I tell myself that it's okay, that I'm gonna be okay, and I'm not gonna be the biggest screw up that ever produced a child. <laughs> of course. So, because that's my, of course that's my feelings. Like I'm gonna do this wrong. And who knows, that's part nature, that's part nurture, that's, you know, a lot of things. But one of my favorite sayings is, okay, let's stop and go back. Now, how did we get here? How did this happen? Let's examine. That's sometimes easier said than done. We don't always have time to stop and go back and examine every action, word, and gesture. But I do think that we have to be able to do that at least some of the time. Just slow down, talk about it, look at it, say it. The fact that you have gotten to this place of self-awareness to me is like when you came up the stairs, I had to hug you and I had to, I was like, crying a little bit because I have been engulfed in your story lately. Like I've always been a fan of you and your music, but I haven't necessarily always known your full story mm -hmm. until you have just put this book out blood with the album. And it is, you survived one of the most horrific traumas you can as a child. And it was your dad in a, dr a drunken state in an angry state killing your mom and then himself. Mm -hmm. And you just decided to write about this. And I wanna know how you decided it was time to share the story. And you also said something like, you're trying to get back to this, the girl, the little girl, like there's a picture you posted of like this little smiling girl, I think you're in a bathtub. Mm -hmm. And on your album for Blood, it's, I'm assuming you as a little girl. Mm -hmm. And is that where you, was that like a joyful state, like an innocent state and how how are you getting how was this book helping you to get back to her and how did you decide that it was time to do this well this will sound crazy but i <clears throat> did not 
I never thought I would write a book. I didn't think it was something I could do, much less would want to do. Um, but about six weeks after my son was born, I was invited to be a guest on Maya Angelou's radio show. Wow. So You yes. talked to Maya Angelou. I did. Not in person. She was in her studio in North Carolina, That's and I was incredible. in New York. But we spoke, you know, back and forth. It How was, was that conversation? It was incredible. I just, you know, I had no idea she was even aware of me, and she starts singing my songs to me. It was like, you know, it blew my mind on many levels, and what a treasure this woman was and still is for us just as human beings what prompted her to, to have you on her to, show i don't know i don't even know um but during the course of the conversation she was asking me about my childhood um we were discussing our upbringing she didn't have a great one either so we were talking about that and she i said something about my parents you know and their importance in my life and how their lives were just as or more important than their deaths were to me because they are, made a huge impact on my life. That made a huge impact on my life. But I try not to let that be the defining factor when I think about my parents, which is hard some days. Yeah. Um, but she said, OK, so well, that's that. And uh, so now we have John Henry. What are you going to tell him when he's old enough to ask what happened? And I did not have an answer for her. So for whatever reason, I began to turn that over in my mind. And I started to write about them. It took me a while to find the real narrative of this book interesting and yeah Did i didn't write know several narratives well i didn't know exactly what i was trying to say at first and did you know exactly how you felt because there's probably so many feelings from you love your parents you mm -hmm. love your dad mm -hmm. on some level because he's your dad and of course there's good in him mm -hmm. and but then you probably hate hate him mm -hmm. and then you probably feel i mean what are the feelings that you feel and i think they run the gamut Mm -hmm. Every possible emotion a person could have, I've probably had about this situation. Um, I just began to write. Mm. And then I figured out the story that I needed to tell was the only one I could tell about them, which is what, what it felt like to be a child living with them. And what did it feel like? It felt like many things, you know. It was often unstable. I was I I often felt unsafe. You I you felt terror sometimes. I did, you know. Uh, my father was abusive. He was verbally abusive. He was physically abusive. You know, I have so many memories of being terrified as a child. I also have the other side of him, which you know, what was his good was, side? Was he was bright. He was talented. He um, was funny. He Musical. was charismatic. You know, all of these things that I guess during the course of writing this book, I'm trying to figure out. And if you read it, you'll like know that I wrestle with all of this information. And I try to figure out how does a person who has so much. And I was often around people as a child who basically who thought he was the best thing ever, who had known him his whole life and talked about how great he was and how kind he was and that is not the person I lived with. 
So I wrestled with that a lot. Like, who is this person who's so violent and drunk and abusive? Um, this is not the person that I hear people talk about. Because mm -hmm. he was also, you know, he was a teacher. He taught English. That's how he met my mother. Was he, he was an English teacher at my aunt's high school, and she actually introduced them. He, uh, people, you know, men showed up at his funeral who he had taught in high school, and they spoke about how what an impact he made on their lives. And I don't doubt that any of that is true. Yet we have this other side that was not seen. think only you knew it? Like you, your sister, and your mom knew this other side? No, I think other people knew it. I think other people saw it. You, you, you know, you can't completely hide. And I think that there was an awareness of his drinking. So among drinking and a juice. close circle. Oh, yeah, he's a horrible alcoholic. And I think that that was responsible for a lot of his issues and quite possibly some mental illness that I, you know, don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. uh, there was just something off there. Yeah. Definitely. So the book is about what that felt like to me as a child. And also losing my parents at the age of 14 in the way that I did and how unsettling that is and how, you know, I've tried to just put the pieces back together and do the best I could. Did you try to block it for a long time? I never had that conscious thought. You know, there's, um, I was talking to someone yesterday about how powerful our brains are mm -hmm. and how hard they work to protect us from trauma, you know. Um, the morning that my parents died, I was 14. I was there. Your mom had just left your dad? About two months before that. Um, you know, the police were there. The police came. I was questioned about what had happened, and I, you know, did the best I could there. But I remember doing so with this very steely awareness. Like, I was a really cool customer 14-year-old, which I would not have been had I not become sort of hardened to a lot of things in the world because of the way I grew up. And the way that a person adapts is to not feel, mm -hmm. to say you're always okay, to be highly functional. Mm -hmm. um, I remember standing at my closet thinking, okay, I need four dresses because I'm going to have to go to two wakes and two funerals. So it was just very matter of fact. Very pragmatic about it. Even though you had a really great relationship with your mom it seemed as great as it could be like with a person a who soul. was oh absolutely and she was funny and she was talented and she was a you know smart ass and you know <laughs> many many things she was a very um vivacious person and she had a feisty side and she was just cool yeah you know I'm, i feel very lucky to have had her as a mother because she was absolutely one of the most capable people um, that I've ever seen as well. And that gave me a really good foundation for always figuring out a way to get the job done, whatever the job is. Why do you think she stayed so long? I think she stayed because, first of all, she loved him, my father. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing when you're faced. I think um, as an adult, I'm, I can now have perspective on what it is to love someone who's an addict. Mm-hmm. And how um, you want to help, how codependency comes into play, how if you have no knowledge of what you're dealing with, you're absolutely floundering because you can't make heads or tails out of any of it mm -hmm. when everything can change from one moment to the next. Or if someone you love says, 
oh, I'm going to change. I promise it'll get better. I'll never do it again. And then it's better for three days. And then it goes back to how it was. And then you just start this cycle over and over. Why she could not break away from him completely, I don't really know. But I also know, and this is one of the difficult things about the situation, too. When she did actually leave him, he made good on his threat to kill her if she ever did. So he was threatening to do that. He always did. And not only that, he would say, if you leave me, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill the girls. I'm going to kill your parents. I'm going to kill every damn body. Wow. So she was so she was living with that knowledge. And, you know, it's easy for people to say, well, if I were in that situation, I would just leave. I don't think that her situation was that simple. Because he actually meant it. And then he actually did what he said he was going to do. Now, many people don't do that. They just threat. But I, you know, I have to say, it's kind of surprising how often this happens. Mm-hmm. And I've become even more aware of it since the book came out because people have come to me and said, told you. same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me, or this didn't happen to me, or, or but this did. How does that make and, you feel to hear these similar stories? Well, it's a lot to absorb. You know, I did a book tour where, um, I, I called it a hybrid tour. So I went into clubs that I would normally play as a singer-songwriter, but I did this sort of dual thing for the book and the record. I spent the first half of the show in conversation with another person talking about the book and interspersing the songs from the new record into the conversation. So it was just, you know, sort of beautiful flow of talking about it and then singing the songs that go with it and all this, you know, um, information about this very specific thing. But... I did a meet and greet afterwards, and the meet and greet would take just as long as the show. It's like a whole other show. And I wanted to to grant that. You know, I've never been a person who was really super excited about breaking that fourth wall uh-huh. and having an intimate relationship with people who were interested in the art that I make. Was it because you didn't want to have these painful conversations? You think? In part. But this was your moment where you're like, okay, I'm doing it. Well, I feel like it was just part of the deal. Because you're like, like, I'm sharing this, mm-hmm. so here we go. I'm sharing this. You're listening to me. I'm going to return that and that's give hard, and, and give you your moment to share with me because that's just the conversation we're having. That's a big moment in your life and career to say, like, I'm ready for this interaction and exchange and conversation. Well, the only way I can make sense out of any of the things that happen in my life is to understand that it's possible that I'm going through these experiences because it is my job as an artist to live them, process them, turn them into something, and then turn that loose on the world. Because the job of an artist is to be a mirror Mm -hmm. in so, so many ways. Mm -hmm. So we take our own experiences and we reflect them back. It's a vulnerable and, job. And, te- and, and give them to the world in a way that they can process. And heal themselves. Their own things. Because um, I think that's why art is non-negotiable in our yeah. lives as yes. human beings. Yes. We have to have it because it gives us a better way to understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. Even for people who don't make art, absorbing art is a way for, for them to come closer to their own experience when they find something that they latch onto that is similar. It's a way for us to be an actual community. 
do you feel like you were chosen to be an artist or like like it was just your destiny or do you feel like you're because you obviously have this incredible singing voice and you're a great guitar player do you feel <laughs> careful <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't say that i think you, you know are. <laughs> thank you do you feel like art chose you or your story because of the life that you led you had to go to art to get it out or because being an artist and especially an artist like yourself who is so willing to share that i don't know if people realize what a beautiful job that is but what a huge heavy job that is too because you are literally sharing your whole most intimate deepest darkest secrets with the yeah. whole world and that's a big deal well i try not to to share the deepest darkest <laughs> but i mean you but, uh, just did well i also am am and i'll i do want to say this before i answer your question specifically i um I have made it my business to be the same person on the outside that I am on the inside. That's a big deal. I don't want to be living one life internally and living another externally. That just doesn't. That conflict doesn't feel good. I don't like that. I don't like it when I see other people do it. And I don't want to be a person who operates that way in the world. I just, how'd it's too much work and life is too short. How did you decide so, you didn't like that? Um. I know that I have issues when I'm hiding something, mm. either out of shame or fear or whatever, whatever the case may be. I feel it physically if I want to say something and don't. Yeah. So and that doesn't mean that I can go around just reacting to the world and saying whatever it is I want to say. I want to be very careful about what I say. But I think that when we're talking about making room for yourself, giving yourself time to investigate all those impulses before you put something out in the world, I think is important. But um, so I just want to be able to live in a transparent way mm -hmm. with everyone. And so to answer your question about was I chosen? No, I don't think that I am special in that way. I don't at all. I think that I um, was raised in a musical family. We always played music. My mother was from a musical family. My father wasn't. But I think that was one of the things that drew them together, too, was he loved music so much and wanted to play music. My mother was just naturally talented. Mm -hmm. And I think that was definitely a bond between them. Um, so I had that background. And my sister and I both sang from the time we could talk. Um, so it was just something very natural that I did. And because we sang as a family and because we did things like, I don't know, come to Nashville when I was 13 and make a record as a family, I thought that that was normal. You so made a family record? Yes. That's kind of a treasure. Crazy. It's crazy. Because I just thought it was normal. It's like... Is that a treasure to you or is it hard to listen to? I don't even have a copy of this record. I think my sister does. But I mainly just remember the experience wow. and thinking like, oh, yeah, that's just another thing. What was the dyna dynamic when y'all made the record? Like what? How well, it was it was a custom record. So it was like, you know, my my father found someone up here that would do, you know, produce, I don't know, a thousand like singles. This was in 1985. OK, so, um, you know, and this is still done all the time um, in in Nashville. But, you know, you hire 
a producer who says, you know, okay, we'll produce this many records for you and provide the band and the studio and all this stuff for this much money. Mm -hmm. So that was basically what we did in 1985. We came away with a, a, a single a little 45 record that had two so so we cut two songs two songs okay what and were they? Originals? um there was one song that my my daddy wrote called traveling fever okay. which was just kind of okay and then we <laughs> cut um we cut an old standard called i couldn't stay away from you so my sister sang the lead part i sang high harmony and my mother sang the low part which was how we often sang it was the three of us we were always singing together and what your and, dad uh, sing? he didn't do anything he didn't no, so he was, was just, just there, like, skulking around. So, But he was a singer. <laughs> it was his whole thing. But why didn't he sing? Because he, I guess, knew that it was better the other way. <laughs> so um, I think because I had that background, and this is due to, to, you know, I give my father full credit for this. He somehow, through doing those things, like, because he always was playing in, in bands, like, at whatever joint or the vfw or just you know just being sort of the local musician guy who had a day job and and doing all those things i didn't think it was odd to pursue art as a path right when you know everybody there were there were no other people who were living like this in south alabama really and certainly no one who you know whose livelihood depended depended on what they made you know as artists but i do think because that was displayed to me from an early age. I had an awareness of, oh, this is an actual job. People do write songs and sing them, and they, you know, can make a living from from art. Um, I don't at all think I was chosen. I just think that I was shown the way. Yeah. And I have hesitated to say that there are gifts that come with losing my parents, but one, but there are some. Um, one of them was they, when they died, that released me from their drama. Uh -huh. I've thought many times, if that had not happened, what would my life had turned into? What do you think it would have turned into? I think it would have turned into a life where I was always struggling with whatever they were struggling with. Mm -hmm. um, because In the middle. Yeah. Because they died, I was released from that, which is not what I would have chosen. Exactly. But since that happened, I have to look at that as an advantage. The other part of it is I don't have to watch them get old. Yeah. They are sort of stuck in amber in my memory you know my mama was 41 and my daddy was 44 when they died so i've outlived them both i'm 47 which is an interesting place to get in life how interesting it is how does that feel to have outlived your parents i in a way and it's it's interesting and i didn't realize that i had done this when i did it but i closed the book so to speak on this book on my 45th birthday which was the moment that I officially had outlived both my parents. That's when you wrote it. It was that's the it? day I finished it. I thought I'm done here. On and I think it, yes. Birthday. And I, and looking back, I think that I felt like I don't have to tell this story anymore. And my life has now become my own. Has that, was that a relief? It was a relief. I think that that's common among people who lose a parent at an early age though. You're sort of watching the clock going, am I going to die at that same age too? It just, we, have that in us whether we are aware of it or not um there's a great book called motherless daughters 
written by an, an author named Hope Edelman. And I read that book, gosh, probably 20 years ago. Um, and it made a big impact on me because I realized that I was not alone in some of these thoughts and feelings that I was having. Like, am I going to die when I'm 41 too? Am I going, am, should I have children? I'm afraid that something will happen to me and my child will be left alone because these are the things that happened to me. And that's just natural to go down that train yeah. of thought. Um, but anyway, I'm trying to answer your I love it. This I is- don't <laughs> feel like I was chosen at all. I feel like that I have some extraordinary gifts. I can sing. I'm very lucky to have that gift and have not always, you know, made it my first thing. And I don't feel like I always have to. Music is a gift. Um, I am very fortunate that I've been able to make that my life's work. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. By the way, I discovered you because growing up, you were you our family's favorite artist. Like, my dad found you first. And That's he crazy. watched the movie The Horse Whisperer. Mm-hmm. And you sang, you actually have a cameo in that movie. I do. And you're singing the song, <laughs> A Soft Place to Fall. Yeah. If I didn't hear that song every day for my entire childhood, I am not kidding you. And so, 
one time when I first moved to Nashville, I swear, I actually, this is really weird. I saw you in a post office, like in a UPS, and I was so starstruck because I was like probably 10 years ago. I was like, that's Allison Moore. (laughs) I can't believe it because you were the soundtrack of my growing up. Like we listened to that song and that the horse was for in particular that album but like your song a soft place to fall was like the theme song of our family mm-hmm. and your voice is just so rich and it's so honest you can feel your honesty and everything you sing and you were nominated for an oscar like mm-hmm. or an academy award with that song yeah. for a song of the year yeah then you were later nominated with your former husband steve earl y'all mm-hmm. are nominated for a grammy mm-hmm. your sister shelby lynn mm-hmm. won a grammy right mm-hmm so it's like, wow, like, wow, the the talent in your family, the talent in you, it's just, it's amazing to me. It's also amazing to me that you navigated to get to this place when you were really orphaned at age 14, your sister was 17, mm-hmm. that you were able to figure out how to make your music and your gifts into this worldwide phenomenon that we all get to experience like how do you do that when you don't know where you're going and you have no home base anymore good question (laughs) (laughs) and I cannot take credit for any of it I can't you know but how did um, you get to the place where you're singing at the Oscars like you're singing on the stage at the Oscars well first of all you mentioned my sister so that's a good opportunity for me to say had I not had my older sister, I don't know what would have happened to me. You know, because y'all just the two of other. us, just the two of us growing up together, living through all that stuff. We are deeply bonded in a lot, a lot of ways. You know, just as sisters. Yes. Also, we're bonded musically. We have that bond, which is very strong, and we have a trauma bond. That trauma bonds are unbreakable. So. She came to Nashville first. She, in a lot of ways, set the example for me. She's like, this is where I'm going. No one who's who knows her is going to tell you that she's done ever done anything but sing, (laughs) and ever wanted to do anything but sing. And everyone always knew that she would sing. And and um, you know, I sang backup for her for a long time. So I learned a lot about the music business through that, and um, you know, also some things not to do. Um, but I'm very thankful to her for being my older sister and in a lot of ways, my guardian angel. And she she blazed a lot of trails through, just through her determination and um, her willingness to put herself out there in so many ways. So I, I did not do that alone. And I did have her example to go by. And I'm very thankful for that. Did but she just come to Nashville and start playing? She did. Well, you know. You've heard her sing, so it's kind of undeniable that yeah, both that was going to happen. But it's just like the gift is so strong um, in your family. Well, she just, and who knows why that is? Who knows? Because y'all both have messages. I think that it's, you know, it's a culmination of things. It's, it's not just talent. It's not just artistic ability. It's, you know, having the heart to do it is part of it as well. And and the, de- the determination and the ability to... Um, Stand up for yourself and say, well, actually, this is the kind of art I'm going to make. Because we both could have gotten lost in the shuffle very early on. And no one would have. She's made 15 records. I've made 10. That's just 
sort of extraordinary in itself mm-hmm. that we didn't fall by the wayside when we not neither one of us have been very commercially successful so anyway i'm very thankful to her for that and i just i don't know the answer other than to say i just did it because it was what i felt like i needed to do and i figured it out as i went along and made a lot of mistakes and got really lucky at the same time what has that journey felt like to you your musical journey after you and Shelby were on your own and living in Nashville. What did that feel like? Now you're in this wide open new space. Mm-hmm. Like it's just the two of y'all. Now you're full force pursuing music as a life. Yeah. And you're on your own. Well, you know, as I said, she came here before I did. I decided to go to college. Okay. And um, did you put yourself through college? I did. So how did you decide to go to college? What is well, it like it's having funny no rules at this <laughs> point? So when my parents died, I um, moved in with my aunt and uncle. Mama had a will that said if anything happened to uh, her and daddy that um, her sister would take uh, my sister and me. So my sister was 17, almost 18, and she was out of high school, so she didn't have to do anything. She was kind of on her own. But I moved in with my aunt and uncle. Um for my my 10th, 11th, and 12th grade years of, of school. And um, my mama also had a life insurance policy that gave both my sister and me $10,000. So I saved mine, and I paid for two and a half years of college at a state school in Alabama with that money. That's <laughs> and then impressive. I got Then I got student loans to pay for the rest, and I worked two jobs, and I did. I just knew that I needed – I'm a person who, you know, looking back as on myself as a child – I was very concerned about how am I going to be able to take care of myself. Um, I was very responsible. Always got my schoolwork done. Tried to be a model student. Basically, I was just trying to hold things together by doing everything perfectly. And I think that I carry that into my life now because I'm still very, okay, I got to get my work done. I can't be late. I need to do, you know all the things to make it appear as if I have it all together. And I was doing that when I was four years old, which what, is crazy. Is Shelby the opposite? I wonder. She's not as much that way as I am, <laughs> but she's still very, we're both very concerned with things have to be in order. We have to be organized. We can't be late. It's all a reaction against the chaos of our, you our, wanted a, stability. A reaction to the chaos of our childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because as good as a mama as I had, she was still always late. <laughs> she never had it together, you know, that kind of thing. And God knows, how could she have? Mm-hmm. So we're we're both um, very concerned with all the details being right. Um, so I went to college, got a degree. Then I came to Nashville, sang back up for her, somehow started writing songs. I got my first publishing deal when I was 24. My first record came out when I was 25. Um, was it? No, 26. Um, and that's just so much of it. Yeah, I worked hard. I did. And I made it my business to be the best I could at what I was doing. But I also got really lucky. And, you know, I never had to kill myself in clubs or anything like that. Basically, I got discovered and Tony Brown signed me to MCA in He's one of the most legendary producers of all times. Yeah, and I'm very lucky. How did you get discovered? I sang at a benefit concert for a friend of mine who died in the value jet plane crash in 1996. He was a songwriter. And I sang one of his his songs. They had a benefit at the Ryman, or basically a celebration of his life and songs at the Ryman. 
And I was completely unknown, though he had been a friend of mine, and we used to sing together just when I was coming up. I was just a green 23, 24-year-old baby. And um, I sang one of his songs, and uh, an agent at Monterey Peninsula, which used to be a booking agent in town, uh, a booking agency, uh, basically plucked me out and said, you're coming with me, and I'm going to introduce you to all these people in town. And then it just went from there. How did Crazy. That, how did that rocket ship of fame feel, especially from coming from this insane upbringing, and now you're on a new rocket ship? Like, you're going into a new world of chaos, but it's all, like, exciting, it seems. Mm-hmm. How was that transition? Because it went fast for you in the like, right, right away, didn't it? It did. Yeah, it did. Looking, it didn't feel fast at the time, <laughs> but looking back on it, it's like, you know, that was pretty fast. And I was so very young. But I also was very mature because of, of what I had been through in my life. And because I had had some exposure to the music business through my sister, it wasn't like I was trying to figure out what was going on. I knew exactly what was going on. I knew what the process was. And I just went about Did going you through like the it? process. Was it fun? I liked it. Um, of Yeah. I, I loved it. I loved writing songs. I loved being in the studio. I loved trying to find myself in that way. Now, as you know, the music business is very difficult. Yeah. And if you don't prove yourself right away, in some way, you can get left behind. But I think because I was signed by Tony Brown as a singer-songwriter, and he sort of protected me at the label... And, you know, basically told everybody hands off, mm. you know, she's, she's an artist and I'm going to let her do what she wants to do wow. within reason. Wow, force you into being something that you weren't. Right. It was That's a huge a blessing. blessing. Now, the other side of that is I didn't get the promotion dollars that, you know, the people that they thought they could have hits on did. Uh-huh. But I will also say I just made my 10th record 21 years down the line. And a lot of the people that did get that promotion money. Are gone. What happened to them? That's so. the thing I love about Tony Brown is he has always loved the artist mm-hmm. and the art. He is so passionate about the artistry, mm-hmm. which is amazing to have someone like that as the head of a label and I know. producer. He doesn't get enough credit for that either. He's so true to that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So then you got married <laughs> and now you have a son who's 10. Yes, fast forward. Talk to me about that walk. Um, When I had John Henry in 2010, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I would continue to make music. I was, you know, married to his dad as a singer-songwriter. We were trying to tour together as much as we could at that time so that we could keep everybody together. Had a a new baby. And so I ended up being actually part of his band for a while. And then um, after I did that, I realized when when John Henry was about 16 months old that something had happened, that something was going on with him. Because this was a child who started using words by a year old. In some ways, he was um, on the front end developmentally. I, looking back... I realized that he was behind developmentally in some ways too. And that's a puzzle that I haven't quite figured out yet. Like, and who knows that I ever will. All I know is he started calling the dogs when he was about a year old, like saying the dog's name. We had Bo and we had Petey and both have passed now. 
but he, you know, just started picking up words really quickly. Then we were, um, after his first birthday, I went on the road with Steve, which meant John Henry went on the road too. So we were all basically living in a tour bus. John Henry took his first steps in a tour bus sitting outside the House of Blues in Houston, Texas. I know. Wow. Poor baby. Wow. It's terrible. Wow. And I missed it because I was on stage oh. and his uh, first cousin was our nanny at the time and, and she witnessed it. But uh, I actually, actually missed it. But uh, anyway, the point is we were on the road and shortly after he started to walk, his word usage started to dwindle. And I thought, well, wonder what's going on here. And, and as with many things with children, you just have to wait and see. Yep. Even though I kind of had a sense of there's something not right here. I began to call his pediatrician and say, you know, I, I think he's using his words less. And I sort of had this sense like something's wrong. I was, something's wrong. And, I started to just sort of feel the word autism, like not even really knowing what autism was, having no knowledge of it really at all. It wasn't really as talked about back then either. Well, no. Not, but that's even back then. But I feel like it's but just becoming a bigger conversation. It wasn't in my dialogue, you know, certainly not. But it's, it's almost like I could feel the word in the back of my brain, if that makes any yeah. sense. So I was really concerned about what was going on. I kept calling his, and I'm on the road, right? In a different city every day. I'm not at home. I can't take him into the pediatrician. I was in this mode of, okay, I think something's going on here, but there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And I have to wait and see on this. Meanwhile, calling everyone I knew, talking to his doctor, talking to other parents, you know, and getting some really bad advice. The point is, is, you know, his doctor said, uh, you know, when boys start to walk, then the verbal thing usually takes a back seat. You just have to give this some time. He's going to be okay. okay. Having that conversation about three times and then taking him into the doctor and she literally told me, there's absolutely no way he could have autism. Look at him. Because he was this beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed, gorgeous baby who was very social and would do things like wave to people on planes and say hi and do all these things. When that started to go away, I could see him start to go inward. Like somehow he was going into himself and becoming um, not as out as he had been as a baby baby. Mm-hmm. And the pediatrician literally told me that. And that's that's a whole nother conversation, like how we think just because something's beautiful, it has to be perfect and good. Interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. Really interesting yeah. how we do that. That's we do do our, that, don't we? You know, physical appearance is part of our filter. It's one of the ways in which we sort people. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, he ended up being diagnosed at 23 months old. And that completely changed everything for me because I knew that I could no longer tour. I was going to have to be at home because he needed a lot of therapy and I was going to have to manage that. So um, that's what I did. I tried to develop my career as a songwriter more because I had a publishing deal at the, at the time. And, and, but, you know, I figured out very quickly, you know, my songs are sort of idiosyncratic and I'm not going to become one of those people who just gets tons of songs cut, blah, blah, blah. So I 
also was faced with the fact that I was going to be unable to get all of the care that he needed under one roof in a school situation in Nashville, Tennessee. So we enrolled him in a school in New York City, and I lived there for, um, gosh, that was when he was three. So six, six more years, because I'd lived in New York before. I came back to Nashville when he was diagnosed because I just wanted to get somewhere easier to live. I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get everything that he needed in Nashville. So we went back to New York and I lived there for six years. And that was when I really got serious about writing blood. Okay. Because I couldn't tour. I went back to school. I got an MFA in creative writing. And during the process of writing this book, so I got a master's and really just started. It was partly because I was trying to figure out the next part of my life. Like, what am I going to do with myself? Because I can't just be a special needs mom. And you're a share of right. Of, of got to do something with yes. my life. Yeah, I got to be making art. I've got to be being creative in yes. some way. So the only know how the only way I know how to do that is to turn my own life into some kind of art. Wow. So that's where blood came from. Yeah. And it was all. And it was really inspired by him because part of it is me looking at all of that information and trying to figure out how it affected me. So that I know what to look for so that I can be the best parent that I can. How has it affected you, do you think? It's, you know, affected me in a lot of ways. It's made me absolutely distrustful of the world. That's my biggest issue. I always say that trust is my biggest issue in life. That's, I feel like that's what I'm here to learn is like how to trust. Bigger force Just trust, trust period. Just trust trust period. in God. Trust in myself. Trust in other people. Because, and this is common among children of alcoholics, we feel like we have to do everything ourselves and that we can't ask for help. And for whatever reason, our childhood experiences are not filled with, yes, you can depend on me for my parents. So we end up little overachievers and feeling like we have to do everything for ourselves and we have to be perfect and we have to be diligent in everything and make an A and get a gold star and do it all right. And, but... Never look like we're working hard and never ask for help. That's one of my main issues in life is all of that. And that's a lot. So how is that transferred now into you parenting, especially with a son who's autistic? Well, I think one of the best things that it's taught me is I can't do it by myself. There's absolutely no way that I can take care of him and earn a living and be a decent artist, mother, friend, wife, whatever it is. It's too much. I can't do all that. I have to have help with him and I have to be able to say, I don't understand this. Yeah. I need a team of people to help me figure out the puzzle of autism and just how to deal with life knowing that my son may never be independent. You know, we don't know. I don't know. I always maintain that he will surprise us. And of course, he does surprise me every day. But I think that he has something to say and he has a purpose beyond anything that I can understand right now. Of course. And 
that's another thing it's taught me is patience. Like, I'm not going to know the answer to this today. This is a wait and it's see. Years. It's a, yeah. Wait and see is like my worst thing. So your whole journey now is to wait and see. Isn't that mm-hmm. interesting how we're forced into these situations <laughs> that we want to resist with remember, our whole heart? <laughs> yes. Remember when I said to you at that dinner party, you get the child that you need. Yes. You did say that because mm-hmm. for everyone who follows this podcast, I followed my journey to motherhood and I've had so much anxiety. And I at that dinner party was no shocker I had a little I had to drink some wine for the first time in a while so I was like feeling it because I hadn't been drinking it forever started crying telling everyone at the table how I have all this anxiety about being a mother and Allison was just dropping some wisdom well I don't know I um I I always say yeah you don't get the child you want you get the child you need because really The beauty of being a parent is you get to see just how little you actually do know. Yes. And you you come up against something that is bigger than you are. And there's absolutely no way that any of us can do it without a whole lot of faith and trust that these little pieces of our soul that break off and grow feet and walk out away from us are going to be okay. You know, it's the hardest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world. Now, I just met your tiny daughter and she's so precious and she's so little and she's going to grow and she's going to walk away from you. I know. And you're going to have to have a foundation of trust and faith that she's going to be okay. And all you can do is trust that she will. So, and chances are she will be okay. The fact that you said trust is your hardest thing how and now we're talking about how you have to have trust how do you do that how how do you get there when you just forced into it like how do you find trust minute to minute that's the only way what do you lean on for it i pray i meditate i make i try to make that room for myself that we were talking about earlier so that i can get back to my center because i do think Despite all the things that I've been through in my life, and that's not to say that my life has been terrible. My life has been wonderful. I've had some extraordinary experiences. But despite the things that would that contribute to my feelings of distrust and discomfort in the world and uneasiness and anxiety and all those things that we deal with, um, I do believe that my center is that child that you that you talked about seeing the picture of in the bathtub. Um, she is happy and she's joyous and she's full and she's ready to take on the world and have all those wonderful experiences and just is happy to just be here, just to, you know, to show up and have the experience. So when I say, you know, I I think what I said was 2019 will always be the year that I started to reclaim her. Yeah. Yeah. When I look at those pictures of myself as a child, I see a lot of stuff, you know. I see someone who is becoming aware that things aren't necessarily great, but I also see a determination and a sweetness that I feel like, you know, at at times in my life has disappeared. Yeah because of whatever experience. And what I feel like 
one of my goals personally is to be able to rely on who that person was and still is because she did trust and she did have joy and she did have hope and and she did have excitement about whatever was happening so i try to look at that and realize that that is still in me and what that to find that it requires that i make some room in my life for myself so when i talk about i need a team Mm -hmm. to help me figure out what's going on with my my son well i do you know he's been doing 40 hours of therapy per week since he was about two years old i haven't done all that you know i'm very lucky that early on i was trained to embed those techniques into our lives so that we live in a way that's always about drawing him out communicatively um but i can't do that all day every day and i knew very early on that i didn't want to do that all day every day i want to be his mama i want to be his safe place i want to be the person that he comes to when he has a skinned knee i don't want to be the person who's always trying to do therapeutic techniques with him all the time. So I got to have either through his school that he's in in New York City or in the summertime when he's here in Nashville, I have, you know, three or four people who are in and out of our house all day doing speech therapy, doing ABA therapy, doing music therapy, all those things that we have to do because that's what he needs. In order for me to pull that off, I got to make a little bit of room in my life for myself to reconnect with that child who had hope, who had hope yeah, and just did trust other people to, um, to help. Yeah. How has it been trusting other people and having a team? It's hard (laughs) (laughs) because going back to the part of me that's like, nope, I can do it myself. I'm just going to grit my teeth and I'm going to set my jaw and I'm going to make it like I need it. I need it to be. But you can't. Well, parenting is just the very best way for me to learn that I'm not going to be able to hold my mouth right and make this like I want it. Yep. So when I say, hey, baby, <laughs> when you, you get the child you need, he is my greatest teacher in that it's forcing me to be able to trust others and also let go and say, you know what? I'm not going to be the perfect mother. And he may completely embarrass me in public or, uh, and we'll, and I'll have to learn how to laugh and get through that. Or was that hard to walk through that? Those, that initial acceptance that this isn't going to be my, this, the, what I dreamed it would be, you know, but it's mm-hmm. better because it's what you need. It's what, it's something that I need to learn. Was it hard to let is, go of the dream? Well, I don't know that I necessarily had a dream of what yeah. our perfect experience would be. Yeah. I just, the minute I found out that I was going to have John Henry, I loved him and I wanted him however he came. Exactly. Um, and he has autism. He's nonverbal. He has behavioral problems and that's what we got. That's what we're dealing with. So we do the best we can on a day, day-to-day basis. And you know, the day-to-day thing, the minute-to-minute thing is a huge lesson for me because I'm a planner. I need to, you know, have all the ducks in a row and make sure I have everything done right, perfectly. Well, guess what? That's just not the way life is. And sometimes, I don't know, we get on an airplane and he screams the whole time. 
and there's nothing I can do. And I've got people shooting me dirty looks or, you know, saying, well, you know, you shouldn't have him on a plane. And I have to say, we have to live life and you shouldn't be protected from him. Amen. Because that. people get really, you know, discombobulated about their bubbles being bursted. Uh, yeah. Or, and, yeah. And I just, you know, I've had to learn how it's all a, an exercise in compassion. How to speak I have, compassionately to assholes? Yes. <laughs> yes. And and how effective it is when you don't lash back but instead say he has autism, and I'm very sorry. We're doing the best we can do. Wow. That's the best, because that shuts people up. Like, How does believe. that turn that conversation around? Um, usually people just are embarrassed that they were a shit. Yep. And, like, and they shut up, or they leave, or whatever it is. Um, you know, I've had experiences like, just this past fall, I was in New York, and John Henry and I were spending the weekend together, and we went to a restaurant together. And... People don't realize what they're looking at. They don't, because we don't have awareness about what autism is and because it can manifest itself in so many different ways, they just see a nine-year-old boy who isn't behaving the way that they think he should. They don't understand that he doesn't have language that they can understand. They don't understand that he may make weird noises or he has to have his iPad at the table. Otherwise, he'd be eating their French fries off of their plate because he would have climbed over the booth or whatever it is. You know, I had someone complain to me about how much noise he was making during a meal. They were sitting at the booth uh, next to us. And um, I just sort of absorbed it. We were getting ready to leave. I paid the check. And on the back of the receipt, I just wrote, I'm so sorry we disturbed you. My son has autism, and it's a miracle that he made it through this meal without throwing a tantrum. I'm going to be grateful for that and just let you know what we're going through. God, you're so profound, and, Allison. Well, and I just, I've been practicing. <laughs> so I just wrote I wanna, that. Because I want to, like, rip the, this woman a new well, one. Well, you want to do that, right? Oh my God. But this is a way of ripping a new one in a nice way. It's, yeah. And in a way that allows them to not react to me having and reacted to, learn. to them. And it allows them to learn and become better. And that's that's the best thing I can do. But that's involving you raising yourself higher, which is, God, so amazing. Well, and I haven't always done that. You know, I will, I have to say, you know, I've gone off on people who have attacked me for not doing what they think I should be doing. And they don't understand that maybe I'm in a moment of crisis or maybe I'm just at your wits end at my day. wits end, or maybe I've gotten a chunk of my hair pulled out yeah. on the plane that we're on where they don't understand why he's screaming. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, well, I don't understand why he's screaming. His ears may be. You know, he wears head at this point in his life. He wears those Bose noise canceling mm -hmm. headphones because he's so sound sensitive. So, you know, my, my point is, I, you know, I have to try to take care of myself so that I'm able to say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I hope that we didn't disturb you. And that's also me teaching him. As you know, you know, parenting is most about setting an example it oh 
gosh, Allison. Okay, so, I want to talk to you forever. I mean, I would literally talk to you forever. We've been talking an hour, so I have a couple more questions <laughs> okay. I want to ask you. And I talk too much, no, so you have to edit. No, you know, no, 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 no. All no, my no, nonsense. No. My first question, just this is a big question, but how have you come to terms with God through all of your journey? I think that God is a big question. I I have been through times in my life when I have asked myself, do I even believe in God? I remember when I was a small child lying in my bed at night praying, please, God, don't let daddy hurt mama. Please, God, don't let daddy hurt mama. And saying it over and over and over again, because my sister and I, you know, we shared a room until she's about 11 years old. We would lie there and we would hear them fighting. Is that what that song Nightlight's about? Mm-hmm. How yeah. she was your like your nightlight until your mom could come. Mm-hmm. And she still is. Yeah. Um, after they died, I was so angry and so, so very angry for a very long time. Anger will fuel you mm-hmm. to get a lot of shit done. <laughs> um, but I wasn't in touch with my spiritual self in a way other than making art. And I wasn't even making art in a spiritual way until I noticed that that was really missing from my life. And I'd also, yeah. And also going back to that little girl in that picture, she believed in God. She believed that Jesus loved her, (laughs) Mm -hmm. all the things that they tell us. And I'm not a a person who goes by any religion or any of that stuff that I was taught as a child or any of the Southern Baptist stuff or the Methodist stuff. When, you know, we actually made it to church when I was little, it was to one of those, the yeah. Baptist church, the Methodist church. I'm not into that. I'm into whatever saves you. I love that. Whatever gets you through it. I'm down with all the kingpin deities, What, whatever they, you know, I don't care. As long as it's about peace and love. Yeah. I'm good with it. So I try to think about that. I read a lot um, of spiritual writing. I'm a big Thomas Merton fan. I'm a big Richard Rohr fan. I love Richard Rohr. Um, I went to his conference one time. You did? It was awesome. Do you get his daily newsletter? Yes. I love it. It's, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. I just registered for a course um, through the Center for Action and Contemplation. Yeah, that's what I want the, to. The wisdom, mm-hmm. the wisdom way of knowing I'm very excited about that. It starts in March. Awesome. Um, And I'm a nerd, so I'm always doing this class or that or Well, you're curious and you're a searcher. Well, I just want to know as much as I can about all the avenues, you know, Mm -hmm. so that I can come to some sort of peace Mm -hmm. and calm in my own self. So where I am with God these days is I absolutely believe that there's a God and I believe that that God is with me and taking care of me and my husband and my child and everyone that I love. Now, that does not mean that I think God's going to go make everything okay for me. I don't believe in that prosperity gospel stuff. Um, I think that God is in us. Yeah. God is the best part of us. Why do terrible things happen? Don't know. I think terrible things have to happen just like beautiful things have to happen. We have to have the contrast to Mm -hmm. know the difference. There has to be some kind of balance. And that's very confusing, I think, when some things happen 
then you go, Mm-mm, that just shouldn't have happened. School shootings, that shouldn't happen. Um, children being harmed, abused, killed, threatened, shamed, that shouldn't happen. Um, but it does. I think bad things happen when human beings go by their own will. Yeah. 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 Not the God part of who they are. Yeah. And then I want to ask you about I'm to Blame because mm. that's a song on your album and it's a note from your dad. After our parents died, my sister was going through an old briefcase that had belonged to daddy, which I had seen in the closet most of my life. Um, this briefcase stayed in a closet to the right of the fireplace. And it was full of old papers and tapes and this, that, and the other. So she was going through it after they died, and she found a lyric to a song called I'm the One to Blame. Well, neither one of us had ever heard the song. It was just a lyric. And it was kind of stunning in its quality and in its honesty. So she put music to it. Wow. And... um Neither one of us had ever recorded it. So I recorded it on on this new record that's the companion piece to this book. I thought it was time. I loved the song. And I wanted to give him a voice. That is, was his actual voice. So what was what is the voice? I think the lyric of that song is the closest that we get to him being accountable. And it's also go? very sad. How does it go with the chorus? Sorrow took the pride, I'll take the blame, which is profound. That he would take the blame. Just that, those two lines are kind of brilliant. Uh-huh. Sorrow took the pride, I'll take the blame. Sorrow. So his sadness mm-hmm. took the pride. And, and then won. he will take the blame. His sadness for won. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he'll blame, he'll take the blame for letting his sadness win. Mm hmm. Whoa. Yeah. It's really How simple and deep that is. Really deep. And Sorry. shows a side of him that I always knew was there. And as an adult can see how it was there. You know, what I'd give for one conversation with the man. Because mm-hmm. I think that he did have that ability to be deep and profound and wanted to be. He was just also a terrible alcoholic. And when you are one, that rules your life. Mm-hmm. Oh, Allison. Wow, what an amazing person you are. You are you are a messenger on this earth, that is for sure. God is using you in a really big way mm-hmm. through the journey that you're that you've walked. So I want to wrap up with I always wrap up with this question. Leave your light after your life, your journey, your experiences. What do you want people to know? That I tried. Really hard. Gosh, Allison. (laughs) There's a lot in that statement, but that's true. Have you given and that s- runs the the gamut, you know, that I tried hard to be a good mama, take care of my boy, and be a good friend, and be a good partner, and 
be a good artist. Have you given yourself grace? I try. I try. Not easy. Not easy to do. But that's one of the things I'm working on. Well, I just want you to know from an outsider's perspective, you have made such a beautiful ripple effect with your life and everything that you have shared from your art, from your story in a book, from the human that you are, from your wisdom at a dinner table that I picked up within five seconds of just being around you, from the aura that you put out, from the way you're raising your son and being open and walking that journey and sharing it, you're not just trying, you're, you're really impacting. And I am so blessed and grateful that I got to cross paths with you and I pray that you stay in my life because you are someone that is so inspiring because, sorry, Sugar is really agreeing with me. <laughs> you're someone that's so inspiring because you're not turning away from the cards that you're being dealt. You're leaning into them so deeply and letting them become a beautiful thing even though they're so painful. And I think that is so hard to do. And so many people will not do that. Mm-hmm. And you do that. I hope that I, this part of this experience, this journey, this life, if you will, I hope that in my revealing myself so much that I do it with the most self-respect that I can, um, that there is a level of um, sharing, but not oversharing. And um, I, you know, sometimes I don't know where that line is. I want to be aware of it, but that's a factor. Um, I just, I, I hope that I can do it with, with grace because for whatever reason, I know that I'm supposed to share my stories. I hope that I do it in a way that people can relate to and that, you know, doesn't embarrass my family or the people around me or me. So, you know, it's a constant, it's a constant, uh, tightrope walk, but minutes, minute. Thank you so much for coming on here. Allison, you're Thank you for having me. Incredible. Like you are so incredible. And I just know oh, back to you. Oh, blessed that you would share that your story with me and, and your time with me because I know it's so valuable and I'm, I'm so appreciative. Absolutely back to you. Oh, okay. Do the best. <laughs> Bye. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors 
has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 